6, we'll try and take in the whole chapter. Is there a clock in here? No. Good. Great. <laughs> Ignorance is bliss. When I was a kid, my, my dad, who's here, read me Pilgrim's Progress. Put your hand up if you've read that book. Great. If you want to be my friend, you have to have read that book, by the way. That's how it works. It's just an unbelievably good book. The clue to the purpose of the book, or the plot of the book, is in the name of the book. The Pilgrim Progresses. And as my dad read it to me, you see this. It's a picture story of a bloke called Christian. And all the characters are given very blunt, obvious names, right? It's like, uh, does what it says in the tin. So he's a Christian, right? And as Christian, near the start of the book, walks up a hill battling up because of a massive burden on his back that pictures his sin. He ascends this hill and he reaches the top and he beholds the cross of Christ. And as he sees the love of God in the death of Jesus, he puts his faith in it and his burden of sin just falls off and rolls down the hill. Which is a great feeling, isn't it, when you become a Christian? Remember that moment? But what's interesting about the Pilgrim's Progress is that isn't the end of the book. That's not the end of Christian's story. It's not game over for his testimony. In fact, that's just the beginning of the story. Pilgrim, whose hometown was the city of destruction, finds himself now at the hill of Calvary, but he's now on a journey to the celestial city. The Pilgrim is to progress. Do you get the point? Now, I loved this story as a kid. It's packed with drama because every step for Christian has a different companion, every turn a different enemy, every page a new danger, every crossroad a path to avoid. But as you grow up with the book, you know, you start off with the, um, the family edition, you mature into the kind of big bad boy with language you can't quite understand. But what's, what's massively interesting about the book is it's brutal. For a book that is called The Pilgrim's Progress, it is alarming how many pilgrims don't persevere in their progress. Christian meets a load of people who, although they are on the path to the celestial city, never make the celestial city. I'll give you some of the names, just so you can pick up in the story, right? And again, the clues in the name. Simple, sloth, and presumption are so lazy that they've seen Calvary, but they're asleep at the bottom of it. They've never progressed from a profession of faith onto the pathway of discipleship. The man in the iron cage was once a flourishing Christian, but he paused to look at the lusts and profits of the world, and he finds himself in his own personal prison. Formalist and hypocrisy have all the externals of religion, but they've got none of the reality in their heart. Talkative loves to discuss theology, but he's never allowed that theology to turn to application. Mr. Byens loves using religion to line his pockets and to get a little bit richer, but he has no love for Christ. Flatterer, by his words, would make you think he's a Christian, but he's actually out to deceive pilgrims off the way. Demas was walking well. But he fell out of love with Christ as he got captivated by love for the world. Turnaway falls away as he's assaulted by seven demons and is captured. Temporary begins well, but he does not end. He backslides before his spiritual race was finished. Ignorance. Man, ignorance. He gets all the way to the celestial city, the gates, with hopeful and Christian, and he's battled there. 
but he's turned away because he had no intimate personal knowledge with the king of the city. And it, you get to this last page of the book and you expect to do this, this massive fanfare of the celestial city. Do you know what the last sentence of the book is? Speaking of ignorance, so I saw that there was a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. It's a brutal book. And for a book called Pilgrim's Progress, it is alarming how many pilgrims don't progress. But for Bunyan, these weren't just fantasies in his dream. These were people that he pastored. These were names and faces in his church, which is true for us, right? These people are family. These people are friends. They've been members. See, I can tell you about people like Demas, who once loved Christ but have fallen in love with the world. I could tell you about young men that I've discipled who you could aptly give the name simple sloth or presumption because their laziness has dulled them to the point of sleepwalking towards hell. I could tell you about men like talkative who will take on anyone debating doctrine but they're dangerously deceived because they've never applied that doctrine to their crumbling marriage or to their addiction to porn. I could tell you about dear old ladies like formalists who have filled the pews of churches in our city, but they could not articulate the gospel. I could tell you about blokes like buy-ins who have stayed in our house for months, if not years, feigning a love for Jesus, but actually only leeching off Jesus' church. I could tell you about pastors like hypocrisy, who have preached sermons like this one, whose private lives have hidden affair after affair after affair. I could tell you scores of stories like those in Hebrews 6 who have been enlightened, who have tasted of the Word of God, tasted of the powers of the world to come. They've even experienced the Holy Spirit, and yet they have fallen away. Now, if we don't mourn for these people, then we don't truly love them. But if we don't also mourn for the disgrace that they have brought on Christ, we don't love Him. But here's the question. How do you read a book like Pilgrim's Progress? Or how do you read about these people in Hebrews 6 in the first kind of six verses and not start to doubt your own salvation? You feel that? How, how do you look at the profile of these people or hear the testimony of these people without spiraling into despair and doubt? Because I know me. And my faith can be so feeble sometimes. My heart can be so deceitful sometimes. My mind can be so dark, so depraved. I am so prone to wander. My temptation towards sin is so frequent. I can guarantee you that if it were possible, if it were up to me, and if I could lose my salvation, I would. You ever feel like that? It's way easier to float back to the city of destruction than it is to fight towards the celestial city. It's far easier to float like a poo stick than it is to fight like a salmon. You know the game poo stick? Amen? Isn't it? It's way easier to float back. It's way easier to fall away. It's harder to fight on. So what assurance is there? 
What hope is there when I feel this? When I feel like I'm drifting? Where can I put my faith? What can I put my eyes on? Where can I rest? Well, thankfully, in the midst of these doubts, right into the mix of this reality, the pastor of the Hebrews wants you to know a simple truth. There is an anchor for your soul. There's an anchor. And not just an anchor to hold you in the midst of the sufferings that come from the outside, but thankfully, an anchor to hold you from the sin that comes from the inside. And we need both, right? And because this is important, because the anchor is so significant, if you look back to verse 17, God wants to make sure that you, have, that you are very clear on this. And in verse 18, the author of the Hebrews wants to make sure that you are greatly encouraged by this. You get so by the end of the sermon, this is what you should have. Absolute clarity, and you should be greatly encouraged. So if you, if you don't walk out like that, that balls this whole thing up. All right? Clarity and encouragement. That's the application tonight. That's where we want to get to. Happy with that? Good to go? All right. So we're going to build an anchor. I found out this week, this is new to me, you know the, the bits on an anchor that dig into the seabed? Do you know what they're called? Anyone know? Who said that? Say it louder. Flukes. Well done, Sam. Blue Peter badge for you. The flukes of an anchor. That's what they're called. So I want to show you a three-fluked anchor. You need to say that carefully. A three-fluked anchor that gives you hope. I want to show you three things from Hebrews 6 that we should look to to know that we are anchored in the hope of the gospel. One, two, three. So here's number one. Number one, you can be convinced by fruit. Now, because he wants to get us clear on this, he gives us an illustration. Look at verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receive the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. What's his point? See the illustration? The point is, gospel rain will produce what? Gospel fruit. You see that? Gospel rain produces gospel fruit. His simple point is, fruit in your life will be part of the proof that you are founded in Christ and moving forward in Christ. A true believer will not just start the race, but will be fruitful until the end of the race. Persevering progress will be the proof that someone's profession of faith is genuine. So he says, we can look at these people. Many don't produce fruit, but produce thorns and thistles. And they fall away. And in this chapter, there's no encouragement for them. There's no encouragement for someone who calls himself a Christian, but doesn't produce fruit. There's no, one, no encouragement for that person whose lack of fruit reveals a lack of faith, whose lack of moving forward shows that there's no foundation. For them, there's no assurance, simply the label, and this is this is black and white language, worthless, in danger of being cursed, and in the end, they will be burnt. It speaks of the impossibility of their repentance. 
Their repentance is impossible because that is the judgment of God on their rebellion. They've seen the gospel in full light and yet they have rejected that gospel. And Bunyan in Poems Progress and the author of the Hebrews are giving us an important lesson here. The impossibility of their repentance is meant to do what to you? Spur you on to repentance. Their lack of progress is meant to be a kick up the backside to make you progress. Their thorns and thistles is meant to spur you on to produce useful fruit. Their danger of curse is meant to guard you on the path to blessing. See, these pastors know that we're complicated beings and we don't always just need encouragement. What else do we need? Warning. I don't just need carrot to say, ooh, carrot. I need stick to say, ah, stick. Don't we? We need hope and fear. We need encouragement and warning. We need good examples to follow and bad mistakes to learn from. And you can be sure that God will use every single one of them to keep you putting your faith in Christ and moving forward in Christ. See, the point of these people in Hebrews 6 is not to make you doubt your salvation, but to make you diligent in your salvation. And I can prove that to you because this pastor doesn't doubt their salvation. Have a look at verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. Why can he say that he is convinced of their salvation? He's convinced by the fruit, isn't he? In the verses following verse 11, he says, I can see your work for the gospel. I can see your love for the God of the gospel. And I can see the way you've helped the people of the gospel. But it's not just that they've done that in the past. It's that they're doing it in verse 11. Now, they continue to help them. See, Christianity is never just past tense, is it? It's always present tense. It's not just, oh, I I had a fruitful summer. Was it 1962? That That was good. No, it's today. It's present tense. It's trusting Christ today. It's faithful to Christ today. It's forward in Christ today. So he looks to their past. He sees, he sees their work for the gospel, their love for the God of the gospel, and the way they've helped the people of the gospel. But they continue in that today, and he presses them on in verse 12 to be diligent to the very end. If you've got a fruit that is produced by your faith in the gospel in the past, continuing today, and diligent to the very end, then you can have assurance of your salvation. He's convinced by their fruit. Which is interesting, right? Imagine we got... Matt's the only... You're the only pastor here tonight, are you? Yeah, those are all AWOL. Imagine we got Matt up. And we asked Matt to go around the room and say, right, Matt, are you convinced of his salvation? Isn't that interesting? There should be visible evidence, fruit, of David Wilson's faith in the gospel. If we got you up here and asked for your testimony, not your testimony of how you got saved, but your testimony of the last week as a Christian, would you be able to tell us about useful fruit or is it more thistles and thorns? And the way that you answer that question will determine whether or not you can have assurance of your salvation. 
because fruit in your life will show that you've got roots in the gospel. You make sense? I find it fascinating. He picks up on, where is it? Verse 12. We don't want you to become lazy. It's fascinating to me that he picks on laziness. Because what's going on in the context of this church that he's writing to? Massive persecution. These guys are getting battered up and down the place by people wanting to take their lives because they've put their faith in Jesus. And yet he says, you know what? The greatest threat to you progressing and keeping going in the Christian faith is not anyone holding a knife to your throat and telling you to renounce Jesus, but it's a tendency of your own heart towards laziness. Laziness will shipwreck the faith of more Christians than persecution ever will. Diligence will be the mark of genuine Christianity. Have you been diligent? You been pressing on? See, your faith in the gospel will always result in gospel fruit, which is why gospel fruit is one of the grounds of assurance of faith. See that first one then? Convinced by fruit. Let's move on to number two. So convinced by fruit. Second, promised by God. The second fluke of the anchor, remember that word. Thank you, Sam. The second fluke of the anchor is the promise of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been let down by enough people's promises not to trust many people's promises. You been there? I'm not going to bank much on a human promise. That's why oaths are needed in court, isn't it? What's the point of an oath? We need oaths because people lie. Not true when it comes to God. God throws down in verse 13 not only a promise which is built upon verse 17, an unchangeable purpose, but on top of the promise built on an unchangeable purpose, he throws down an oath based on the impossibility of him being able to lie. It's interesting. An oath built on an unchangeable purpose, uh, sorry, a promise built on an unchangeable purpose, and an oath that comes from the fact that God cannot lie. That is the Big Mac of promises, isn't it? Think about that. Oath on top of promise. Unchanging promise on top of unchanging purpose. A word that can't lie on top of a word that can't fail. How do you like them apples? It's good, isn't it? And all of that built on the unchanging eternal character of God. So that when God gives you his word, he's given it to you as someone that cannot break his word. It's impossible. So when he gives you a promise, what does that mean? He's going to fulfill it. That is why Abraham could bank everything on the promise of God. He talks about Abraham in this text. If you don't know the story of Abraham, it goes a little bit like this in very short summary. God calls Abraham... And he gives him a promise. The promise is this. Through your son Isaac, you're going to have countless descendants. So Isaac, through him, countless descendants. What's fascinating is that what follows the promise of God to have countless descendants through Isaac is this. A word of God that says, sacrifice Isaac. Pardon? But what is stunning is Abraham with unwavering faith, raises a knife to kill his son. How can he do that? 
because he trusts in the promise of God. He knows that the promise of God comes from an unchanging purpose and that he cannot lie. So if God has promised to bless him and bring descendants through Isaac, even if he raises a knife to kill Isaac, what will God do? He'll resurrect Isaac. Abraham believes in the purpose of God, the promise of God so much that he can raise the knife to kill his son because he knows that God will raise his son. Do you see? Abraham believes in resurrection. Why? Based on the unchanging promise of God. I can sacrifice Isaac because God will raise Isaac. (laughs) He believes in resurrection, which means that His faith is not like spread betting. He's not putting eggs in different baskets. He's all in. When he's told, go, leave your country, what does he do? He goes, even though he doesn't know where he's going. When he says, sacrifice your son, he raises the knife because he reasons that God can raise the dead. Some would call that reckless. Some would call it stupid. Some would call it irrational. God calls that faith. Faith is a trust a belief in the purpose and promise of God, even in the face of death and even when resurrection is the only way out. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe in the promises of God enough to bank your eternity on them? Do you believe in the promises of God enough to say, actually, the only alternative is death and so I trust in resurrection? Do you believe that? Does your life reveal that you've got a faith in the unchangeable promise of God or are you hedging your bets and putting your hopes in the changeable stuff of this world? Because unless you have that kind of faith that says, I I believe that even if I die, God will raise me, then what do you have? The only basis for a Christian's assurance is is the unchanging, eternal promise of God. And the proof that God fulfills every promise he ever makes is the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the resurrection are proof that God never fails to keep his word. See, when he asks Abraham to sacrifice his son, God's not actually asking Abraham to do something for him. God is showing Abraham what he is going to do for the world. That he will give his one and only son. So that even though you ought to die, he will give you resurrection, eternal life. Do you believe that? Has God made unbelievable promises to you in the gospel? Yes. Has he fulfilled them? Yes. How do you know that? Did he raise Jesus? Yes. Will he raise you? Pardon me? Yeah. He promised it. And as it says says elsewhere, all those he foreknew, he predestined, all those he predestined, he called, all these called, he justified, all these justified, he glorified. All those he brings out of the city of destruction, he'll bring safe to the celestial city. The chains of this anchor are built on the unchanging, eternal purposes of God that is impossible for him to lie. Where's your assurance? It's in the promise of God. Which is why in Pilgrim's Progress, I love the little character called Little Faith. He's a fascinating little guy. 
you see him, and he's absolutely battered by these three brothers. And you read it, and you think, here's, here's another character that's going to fall away. It's never going to make it. But Bunyan charts little face progress all the way into the celestial city, and Bunyan makes a fascinating comment about little faith. He says that getting to the celestial city for little faith was more about good providence than by his own good endeavor. See, it's not a case of how much faith you have or how strong your faith is, but it's a case of how strong is the thing your little faith is in. Do you have a big, faithful, promise-keeping God? Yes. And so even little faith is strong when his faith is in that strong God. Do you see? So, convinced by fruit, the promise of God. Here's number three. Anchored by Jesus. Read with me verse 18 again. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. You see the definition of a Christian there? A Christian is somebody who's done what? Fled to hope. What does that tell you about the story of a Christian? They were hopeless. That was me. Read the rest of Hebrews. And all of us say, this is my life. I am destined to die and after that face judgment. That was my world. That was my hopelessness. But when God's word graciously opened my eyes up to that, and you see that in Jesus, he has given hope to the hopeless, what do you do? You flee to him. You bolt. Because in Jesus, you find the one who has achieved your salvation. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary, and he suffered and died alone. Who should have suffered and died alone? Me. Destined to die once and after that face judgment. But Jesus achieves my salvation by dying in my place under the judgment of God so I might be saved from it. He achieves my salvation so that on the cross, to show that it's achieved, the curtain that barred me from the presence of God is torn in two. He welcomes me in. Now, when you're hopeless and you see that, what do you do? You you flee to it. Sometimes you hear Christian testimonies that make Jesus sound more like a lifestyle choice. He's not, is he? He's a life or death choice. Coming to Jesus is not like us choosing a holiday destination. It's like a Syrian refugee fleeing a war zone knowing that the alternative is death. You flee to him. But this is what we need to get to. Verse 19. Jesus has not only achieved our salvation, he has anchored our salvation. Verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. So a Christian is somebody who's done what? They've fled to Jesus, but what has Jesus then done? They fled to him. He runs. He's a forerunner. They flee to Jesus. He then runs from cross to heaven, not just to achieve their salvation, but to what? Anchor their salvation. So put points two and three together. It is not just that my faith is anchored in the eternal promise of God, but my faith is anchored in the eternal presence of God. 
Jesus enters into heaven to plant the three-fluked anchor deep in the very presence of God. See, Jesus isn't just a priest who dies on your behalf. He is a priest who lives to intercede on your behalf, and he's going to bring you safely home to hope. The place where there's no more storms, no more tears, no more need to fight, no more need to hide, but firm and secure. That's good in the storms of life, isn't it? That's good in the storm of sin. That Jesus didn't just achieve my salvation, he's anchored it. I'm tethered. Even if I'm prone to wander, he's got me. And he's going to bring me safe home. That's your anchor. The promise of God, but also the finished work of Christ, not only on the cross, but as the one who's anchored it in heaven. That's a hope firm and secure, right? It's not a worldly hope that goes, I hope Tesco's got curly whirlies. It's not maybe. It's I. It's done. Safe and secure, firm and steady. Trust me, you will need this anchor in your Christian life. It's no surprise that the character that is with Christian when he gets to the celestial city is hopeful. Because you need hope. You cannot survive the Christian life without the constant reminder that we are not living for this world. If you reduce this world to ticking off things on a bucket list to do before you die, as if this world is all there is, then you've missed the point of the Christian life. This life is not to tick off bucket list items. It's to live life of sacrifice, self-denial, to know that the bucket list is after this life. See, we believe in resurrection, which is why hopeful is at Christian's side. Listen to this. This is Bunyan near the end. Hopeful had much to do to keep his brother Christian's head above water. Christians sometimes, despite all hopeful's help, would slip down into the waters and rise up again half dead. But hopeful says to him, Christian, these troubles and distresses that you're going through in these waters are not a sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you, to see if you will call to mind all the goodness that you've received from him. You are being tested to see if you will rely on him in your distress." The storms in this life will come. There will be times when you feel like you're more like a poo stick than a salmon. What do you do in those moments? You need to do these three things in reverse. You need to flee to Jesus. You need to remind yourself why you fled to him in the first place. Remember how hopeless it was before you met Christ? Remember how empty it was before you met Christ? Remind yourself why you fled to him. It wasn't just a lifestyle choice. You fled. Then remind yourself of the promises of God. They are unchanging. Do you remember that everything in your life changes? Your family will come and go. Your career will come and go. Your health will come and go. Your friends will come and go. Your money will come and go. What doesn't change? The promises of God. And so as you remind yourself of that gospel... 
as it were, as you allow that gospel to reign on you again, see, reign is sometimes a good thing, then it will produce a fruit that you need to produce until the very last day. You've got to flee. You've got to put your faith in the promises of God because as that rains down, you can't help but produce fruit. We have this anchor that will hold us fast. It's good news, right? So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing, He Will Hold Me Fast, because that's a good song. So let's sing, uh, pray, and then we'll sing.